Hello and welcome to Headclog and the Operator, a podcast about art, technology, and humanity. And yes, that Venn diagram is just a circle. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and for this episode, I was extremely excited to talk to artist and filmmaker Albert Burney and video game creator Gabriel Koenig, who recently joined forces to create the retro-styled point-and-click adventure game Tux and Fanny. They're two best friends who are just trying to reinflate a soccer ball, but all sorts of events, both profound and ridiculous, ensue. It's a wonderfully pure, good-hearted, meditative, blissfully fun, and positive experience. I'm a big fan of it myself. While playing this game isn't a prerequisite to listening to this interview, it's highly encouraged and a great way to spend a mere $10. Now available on the Switch and all PC platforms and maybe other consoles in the near future. So please enjoy this conversation with the creators of the Tux and Fanny video game, Albert Burney and Gabriel Koenig. Great googly moogly. Uh, thank you both for taking the time to chat with me today about Tux and Fanny and all the art that you created that led up to it. I uh, discovered Tux and Fanny as a feature film being recommended to it by a internet friend. And this was in 2019 and continued along with it during the one minute installments that came afterwards on social media. And Albert, you got the idea during the pandemic to create a video game around Tux and Fanny, which is how the both of you uh, started work together. Yeah, it was, so I finished like the first 80 episodes of Tux and Fanny in 2019 and then put that online. And March of 2020, I started to make like season two, what I've been calling it, you know, the next 80 episodes or so. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I've got all this time at home now. I'll just get back into these little stories. And I think I was about, I don't know, eight or nine episodes in maybe to the new season. And there was one particular episode. I set it up kind of like a, it looked like a, kind of throwback to the Sierra type games. It was like Tux is walking through different panels and a new panel would appear and then finds like a can and then you have to grab the can and go to the cow and get the frog from the can to get the flies from the cow so you could fill the can up with milk. So it was like 60 seconds. It was very much kind of almost like a little mini game. And actually my stepbrother commented on the video and said, this feels like a video game. And then just that one little comment was like, oh gosh, it does. And I went over to Twitter and I was just like, I just tweeted out, I would love to make a Tux and Fanny video game someday. If all I had to do was like make the art and like kind of write it and someone else would kind of handle the technical side of it. And I think Gabe, you wrote back maybe within half an hour or something like, depending on the timeline, I'd be interested in this. And then I responded, uh, no timeline really, let's, uh, let's talk. And I think a couple hours later we were on a Zoom call and we talked for about half an hour. And yeah, we, we kind of started making it that day and never, never looked back. <laughs> That's amazing. So Gab, from your perspective, how did you find out about Tux and Fanny in the first place? It goes back to hearing the Spinto band on like a local college station radio and kind of getting into their music. And then, I don't know, through Spinto Band, I found out about Albert's work and became a fan of Silvio. I think I backed that on Kickstarter. And then his band Teen Men. So when Tux and Fanny came out, I was right there, brand new thing that I had been following along or that I, I hadn't known about yet. But when it landed, I was eager to watch it and loved it. And I showed it to my parents. It was like my most highly recommended movie I'd seen that year. Because it was just something so interesting and different. So then when Albert posted about making the video game, I had just finished my previous game, Test Tube Titans, and I was kind of ready for something new. And yeah, immediately I was like, I would make this game for sure. Yeah, we had met briefly in 2015 when the band I was in called Teen Men was playing Vancouver. And I think we just chatted for a couple minutes at the merch table. At one point, we had talked about making a video game together or something. Yeah. Wow. Because I've been doing some like interactive music stuff. So I was interested in like working with other musicians and artists and that kind of thing. So it's funny that there was a suggestion of this thing that never really 
took hold until five or so years later. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's like some things you lay the the groundwork, and it takes five or six years to like blossom into something. And I kind of, I, you know, I grew up playing video games, but I hadn't really played any new games for many years. And then right when the pandemic started, my girlfriend and I bought a Nintendo Switch. And so I think that was a part of it too, is like I was rediscovering how much I loved video games, old ones and new ones. And it all just kind of was one of those things where, you know, everything just like that happened and my stepbrother's comment, the Tucks and Fanny season two, it was all like leading up to this like wonderful little moment when we found each other again online and started making it with not really much of a plan either. It should be stated. <laughs> you know, we talked for half an hour and then it was like, okay, here's some test images and oh, wow, now they can move. And okay, I guess we got to make a house. All right. You know, it was like it, it was, the whole game was very organic. And the only thing I really knew was I wanted it to be a prequel to the movie so that to beat the game would get you right up to the beginning of the movie. Yeah. That's fantastic. So on the tangent of things taking time to take root, there's lots of Tux and Fanny that uh, refers to previous works. There's a kind of conceptual continuity of all the stuff leading up to it. Um, you went to school for visual arts. Yeah. And I understand that you were classmates with Nick Gerwich of Perry Bible Fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. Nick and I went to uh, film school together. We were classmates and roommates. And, you know, before even I started making films, we were working on comics together at the student newspaper. And actually, Tux and Fanny started as a comic during that time. And Nick and I, you know, it was this really cramped little office that was in an old house. And we worked in the little comics room together. It was a job meant for one person, but I think we asked them if we could like split up the duties because it would just be more fun to have a friend. And our bosses were like, I guess so. I mean, we can't pay you anymore, so you have to split this like measly paycheck that you're already getting. But we were okay with that. And yeah, Nick, I was just saw him last week. He lives in upstate New York, and the film I just made this year was playing up there, so I got to hang out with him for a couple of days and reminisce about the old days. Are you currently based around upstate New York or uh, Baltimore? I remember both being. Yeah, Baltimore is home these days. I grew up here and I've been back here for, um, I guess, six years now. Very good. And Gab, you've been in Vancouver for how long? Yeah, pretty much my whole life. I was born in Halifax, actually, but then my parents moved back here after like the first year. So no memories of that. And if I could just talk about Part of the joy of this collaboration was we have a three-hour difference, uh, East Coast, West Coast, and it, <laughs> somehow it worked. Like I knew that sometimes I would like wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be a new message because you were still awake, or like in the morning I knew okay I got probably till about noon before I'm gonna hear any response. But it, <laughs> I think it, it somehow just yeah I, I I love working late at night so I love like it would be like one a.m. or two a.m. my time and we'd still be like going back and forth with with ideas. Very cool. Yeah, I took a look at a couple of the videos on your website, abernie.com. One of the very first ones, Hickory from 2002, it has Nick in the credits. And there's an image of a tree. It's a hickory tree in the window. But it's very similar to me to the apple tree that you see out the window in Tux and Fanny. <laughs> so I see a connection there. Yeah. Um, so the Tux and Fanny started as this comic strip in this college newspaper, university newspaper. Mm -hmm. What things made it 20 years later or 18 years beyond? I saw that there was a social media post that had one of those strips and it was the tear drinking spider. Were there other things that made it to the film? Yeah, yeah. definitely. So I, I probably only did about, I don't know, 15 or 20 strips total. And out of those, 15, let's say, there was maybe three that I, I still liked. Like most of them are just really dumb and, you know, very embarrassing. And you just like cringe thinking about drawing them and writing them. But a couple of them, like the spider tears one, there's another one where Fanny eats a Thanksgiving turkey and like mutates because of the hormones in the turkey. And then I think my favorite one is when Tux gives Fanny the present that it cannot be opened. That was originally the comic, and it was like four panels. In the first panel, it's like, happy birthday, Fanny. Oh, thanks, Tux. And the next panel is like, Tux, I can't open it. And Tux goes into the long 
tirade about if you, you know, it will only bring disappointment and I don't want to disappoint you so you'd never be able to open it. And then it's just two panels of them not doing anything, just like staring at each other. And, you know, I started making these episodes not really knowing where it was going to go. And I think I was maybe 11 or 12 episodes in and I had kind of run out of the ideas that I'd had. So I went back to the comics and I think that birthday present one was like the first one I did based on the comics that was like, okay, we're taking this, these two characters kind of in another direction now. We're going to have these little moments here and there that, you know, they're not part of the story. They're just these little observations between them. Yeah, so ever since I started that comic, I always had the idea to make some sort of short films with these characters. And I, I started to do something in like 2005, I think. I was, I was shooting some live action and it, it never worked. And then I picked it up again in 2014. So, you know, like nine years later, I was going to do stop motion and that didn't really pan out. And then when I started animating in 2018, I don't know why, but I just like thought about 8-bit pixel art. And I found this website called pixelart.com that makes it very easy to draw and animate. And that just clicked. Like as soon as I got to that website, it felt like it had unlocked something within these characters and their voices were suddenly very clear to me. And, you know, I think so much of making anything is like having the tools right at your fingertips that you like to use and that are easy for you to use. Like so much of, of making these shorts and then making this movie or the video game as well is like, it's really fun. And it's like playing in a big sandbox or something. And yeah, I, you know, then I just started making those and finished that up in about a year. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned Hickory being the tree through the window. I, I haven't made that connection, but... It's kind of like everyone has one kind of... Single tone figures. Yeah. Yeah. It was like an early version of them or something. Sure. Tux and Fanny isn't necessarily your first foray into early generation uh, pixel art. I have seen the Teen Men videos. Kids Being Kids, for example. It's very mm -hmm. much the Atari Commodore 64 style. Do you remember what kind of tools were used there yeah i hear the trains coming as well kind of yeah you know what the kids being kids one i think i actually was just stealing a bunch of artwork from websites and there was an emulator that i had at the time so i was just going to old games and kind of like taking screen caps i may have drawn some pixels here or there maybe in the background and stuff but it was at that point i think it was more of just like finding existing pixel animations and kind of repurposing them and recoloring them yeah, and then the uh, I Can Hear the Trains Coming one. I had uh, a Nintendo and a Commodore 64 that I had been glitching and recording onto a VCR and then just digitizing that footage. And so it was a lot of like that footage. So it was like still kind of swimming around in this early video game pixelated world, but it wasn't full on like I'm going to be drawing everything and creating everything. I definitely see other roots in one of your live action shorts. It feels like forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that seems to me to be the template, the Rosetta Stone for Tux and Fanny. You got the brightly different colored walls. You've got happy animals. Mm -hmm. you got Danny the dolphin playing the piano, which is more for laughs in <laughs> that uh, particular case. I think mm -hmm. the happy harp, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. That's that's really interesting. So I finished that kind of like right before starting on Tux and Fanny. You know, it's like. You have these ideas and you keep trying to figure out the best way to get them out. And in 2017, I was finished making Silvio and I was just like kind of figuring out what to do next. And for me, it was just a bunch of short films that like for me, it's like you get an idea and you don't stop thinking about it until you make it. And then you kind of have like a little bit of peace, you know, so it feels like forever I had been like just kind of collecting all of these props and all these things. And it got to the point where I was like, all right. I have enough props now that I need to make this short so I can kind of get rid of these props and get rid of these ideas in my head. And definitely it's kind of like exploring this space. The big difference is like Chamfort, who is the person in that one, is alone. He's like talking to the camera, which is kind of a character. But I think another thing that was great with Tux and Fanny was like, OK, I got two of them now and they can talk to each other and work off each other. And I made another short around that time called The Nightfish, which was a French narrator i use like the french computer speaking text -to speech te yeah texas speech and that really unlocked something when i realized like oh i can write this then translate it to french then have this computer speak it it like allowed me to write things that maybe i wouldn't have written otherwise like if i had been 
recording them myself or, or, or someone was going to be speaking them in English, like somehow going to a, a language that I wasn't fluent in really, I really uh, enjoyed that process. And so that was also something that was leading up to Tux and Fanny. It was like, okay, you know, I had just gotten back from Moscow. I was like interested in kind of learning some of the language, you know, it's like all these things kind of just joined up. And then it was, I think June of 2018, I did the first episode. Fantastic. I've got lots more to ask about uh, Silvio, but uh, Gab, did you come from a family that emphasized music or visual arts and you went to school for video production? Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Originally. And then how did that divert into making games? Um, I think I've always been really intrigued by games and making things. My mom is an artist and she teaches art at a art university and my dad probably would have been an artist but he became an architect instead but he still enjoys making art we were always encouraged to to draw and create and then uh playing nintendo at like age four or something that my uncle had it was like became such a huge part of everything and like over the pandemic i was looking at a lot of art that my parents had kept and so much of it is like video game characters and all these ideas for video games that i wanted to make as like a four-year-old or five-year-old so it was great seeing that there's so much history behind my interest in, in that kind of thing. And then going to video production for school, that was kind of the plan all along. I wanted to make films, but it's it's really hard because you need so many people for making a film. And you, like at bare minimum, you need someone to operate the camera, you need someone to do sound, and you need at least two people to act. And then you, you also need to think about lighting if you want it to look good. There's just so many things. So making films with a few friends from school, like we'd make stuff, but it wasn't often enough. And there were just so many ideas that I want to explore. And I like being able to create on my own time and just like keep pushing a project forward. So eventually I kind of landed into video games as a tangent because I was working doing quality assurance at Electronic Arts. That was like my summer job while I was going to university. Eventually left there because I wanted to go into sound design and there were no opportunities to move up at Electronic Arts, but I did start working at another studio. And eventually I was learning lots of stuff from the sound designer there and started learning how to add some stuff in Unity. And uh, eventually that company went out of business, but I left there having this rough idea of how to operate Unity and that making video games was a lot of fun. And so taking all of these things that I wanted to do with video, it was like, oh, I can make an entire game by myself in my own time and just like push it to completion. And that was incredibly liberating as a creative and as someone who likes video games. And that kind of was like a no turning back point where I realized that I could do this stuff. And I've never had a game that really has blown up or attracted a lot of attention, but there's always been people who have enjoyed the stuff I've done. And that's been enough for me to keep pushing it forward. And everything I make feels like it's a step up and it's a fun, fun thing to work on. Fantastic. I played and loved Jetamero, Hero of the Universe. That was 2018 as the release and Test Tube Titans in 2020. Both great games about the moral and ethical quandaries surrounding lumbering behemoths. So what kaiju films influenced you the most? Or was there something particularly about that kind of storytelling? that uh, you were looking to express with those games? It was a weird source of inspiration for Jet O'Mero. The game that appears in Tux and Fanny with Jet O'Mero is actually the exact idea that I had for Jet O'Mero when I first started the concept back in like 2014, <laughs> which was that it was gonna be a mobile game. Mm. And there was going to be these simple levels where you land and there's some buildings and stuff. And it tells you like, you need to help this person, but you're not sure exactly what to do. And so you push a few buttons and inevitably you destroy everything and then you just have to leave and it's like the mission's over but you move on and you just have to try again and you can never win the game and i thought that was just a really funny concept as a game and somehow it kind of blossomed out into this thing that was more of like a experimental visual experience which yeah i really like the direction jet omero took as like a larger game but then Watching people play Jet O'Mero afterwards, I seemed like most people enjoyed destroying things. And that was like, they didn't necessarily care about the story, but everyone 
as soon as they knocked over building, they were like, this is fun. And so with Test Tube Titans, I was like, what if I make a game that's just about knocking over buildings on purpose? Like that seems to be what people want. And then with, with that one, it was interesting. It wasn't an idea from the start, but kind of halfway through, I had this moral crisis where I was like, I'm making a game about just like knocking over buildings and killing people and destroying things. And what am I contributing? Is it valuable? Because there's so much violence in video games. And so then they, they came into this, the narrative part of the game where which was all kind of like questioning your complicity in a system and all these sorts of things and that felt kind of like a way for me to wrap my head around the violence that i was perpetrating in the game and by making that game itself so yeah i'm not sure where i think the kaiju stuff well actually the kaiju stuff i know exactly where it came from it came from when i was a little kid like if looking at my drawings again it was all just giant monsters and Godzilla, King Kong, and new monsters knocking over buildings and fighting jets and stuff. So it was clearly this idea that's just like in my lizard brain there. And as soon as it had an outlet through uh, Jet O'Mara and Test Tube Titans, I think it just landed right there and took off. A lot of your games have a lot of great music. I know that you've been creating music this whole time, certainly. Um, I think I got into the idea of making video game music um, probably around the same time that I started making video games and I just played Hotline Miami. And that game has such a cool soundtrack that was so different from anything I'd played before. It felt more like music that I'd listened to even though it wasn't a video game soundtrack or something like that. Cause video game soundtracks sometimes sound, they have a distinct sound like more video gamey. So hearing stuff that was outside of that and kind of pushing into other genres more, that was really inspiring. So. Doing soundtracks for my games was, I would say, one of the primary motivations for me making games in the first place because I wanted to make music and that was a cool way. Like there's so many people making music out there but not as many video games. So I felt like putting my music into video games meant that more people would hear the music, which I think ultimately was true. And if I just released the Jet Omero soundtrack as an album, it would have only a couple people listening to it and putting it out with the game, it had so many people who connected with it, which is which is very cool. Yeah, I kind of a similar thing where I always have loved making music, and it was like we were making every other part of this game, the art and the story, and it just made sense to like do all the music. And there's two different types, you know. There's like the records you find that some of those are songs that were recently recorded, and some were one of them actually. The one I think that the Alien Band is playing on the UFO. That's a song I recorded in high school, so. 20 plus years ago. And there's another one, <laughs> I think it's the Fox song. That's another one from high school, you know? So it's just like, and then it's kind of like songs from every year from then on and some new ones. And I loved making those. And we would just kind of like go back and forth and like, I've got one, okay, here's another one. And before we knew it, I don't know how many there are, like 30 records or 26. 36, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't really plan it, but I think we kind of each did half of them. It just kind of how it came together. And then, yeah, like the music in the mini games within the computer in the game, again, we just both like worked on those. And for me, it was like I found this website, I think called Bleep Boop or something. And it just makes it really easy to loop and make little melodies with the different chiptune instruments. And I, I use that for like, I don't know, 90% of, of the video game music, I think that I was contributing. But yeah, you know, it's just so fun. Like the way I look at making movies and the way that we made this game, it's just like, why would we ask someone else to make the music when like, that's so much fun? You know, it's like the more we can do on our own, the more fun we're going to have. That's, that's the way it feels. So Gab, Compared to the creation of Jet Omero and Test Dude Titans, what did you learn in the process of making those games that helped you? Or is there a completely new challenge or several completely new challenges that you had to face? Yeah, it was, I enjoy starting each new game that I make from scratch. I don't want to copy too much code over because it just changes the way that you approach the game and then you're not stuck with issues that you created before. And it's just kind of liberating to start again, which is... One of the fun things about making all the mini games as well was that each of the mini games had their own unique code because there's multiple kind of platformers in the game. And I don't think I reused any of the code between platformers. Like I'd be influenced by them, but I'd rewrite everything without necessarily looking and copying everything out. So they all feel a little bit different. And it was a lot of fun. 
it was like doing like 20 or more game jams over the course of the thing because we had all these little mini games that were like okay what's this going to be and some of them don't make any sense but in the context of Tux and Fanny it's fine that they just kind of exist there whereas they wouldn't have a home otherwise like I don't a game like Agile Auto um, where you're a car running around trying to not get pooped on like I'd love to see that in an arcade but I don't know if anyone would realistically ever pick it up and play it just for the sake of playing mm-hmm. Agile Auto but as including that as a mini game was a lot of fun so um, yeah creating the game it was it was uh, not a super complicated game the most complicated thing was setting up all the interactions and creating it robust enough that when Albert had a new concept for something like oh we want this to jump to this thing where you can play like that then that was sometimes where I'd have to like rethink how I configured a few things but overall it was not a huge undertaking to get everything off the ground and it was uh, more just branching out and playing with a lot of different ideas in different places. There's a lot of both modern and retro inspirations, of course, in terms of the mini games and the game overall. Do you have a favorite point-and-click adventure game that you would say influenced the most? Any from LucasArts games or Sierra specifically, or just? Yeah, I think Albert definitely. Uh had the point and click in mind from the start and I thought that was a great fit for it and he had so much of the design already figured out it was really nicely designed especially watching people playing it and hearing feedback it's like a lot of people think that the puzzles are some of the best point and click puzzles that they've played which I remember playing a game like Maniac Mansion as a kid and I would just not be able to get very far at all because I had no idea what to do and you'd try stuff and couldn't find that dime yeah yeah kind of convoluted at times <laughs> yeah maniac mansion was a, like one of my favorite games but i it only was fun if you had the guide you know like that told you exactly what to do because yeah they were like so random the things that you could pick up and then how you had to interact with them and i from the beginning with this it was always like i like the idea that it's pretty there is no failure sequence. yeah there's you're not getting chased by the mad scientist through the house which is fun but also like totally would freak me out as a kid and like I would be playing it kind of really scared. Um, but, you know, it's like if you picked up, like, a fish food container, you probably were going to feed it to the fish in this in our game. You know, it's like in Maniac Mansion, you probably would have had to, like, put that fish food in the microwave and that would have turned into something else. And, you know, just, like, random <laughs> things that you could do. Yeah, so for me, it was like Maniac Mansion was a huge inspiration. And then I remember going to my friend's house and seeing Space Quest on his computer for the first time. That's a Sierra and that just kind of blew my mind. And I feel like the UFO sequence in Tux and Fanny was kind of inspired by that or like my memory of it as like a, you know, seven-year-old. And then, you know, I was a couple years older and found Leisure Suit Larry, the, the other classics here, a game that probably a lot of people my age played when they were a little bit too young. But, you know, it's pretty tame when you go back and see it now. But that was a big inspiration too, just like this seedy little world and this like seedy character Larry and sure there's like the excitement as like a you know 12 13 year old boy of like ooh you know you have to try to like get these women to pay attention to you but almost as more fun for me was just trying to solve the puzzles you know and figure out how I could gain access to the secret room and you know I think all those Sierra games even though like King's Quest I played too but that was so hard I needed the guide as well but any of those Sierra games are just, you know, they have such a, like an open world feeling like you can walk anywhere and find anything. And, you know, even if it's not true, like they're not super big, but when you're a kid, when you're like, you know, playing these games for the first time, you just feel like this is so exciting. I'm, I'm in control. As for like modern sources, I vaguely remember seeing you say that Animal Crossing is really what got the ball rolling on uh, Ducks and Fanny, uh, that you wanted Animal Crossing, but with a story. Is that accurate? Yeah. So again, like I got the Nintendo at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was the day that Animal Crossing came out. So that was like one of the first games that we had. And my girlfriend and I just like became obsessed with it. We were like fighting over the controller, just going back and forth. Like I would fish and build up my little town, and she would do hers, and we'd go back and forth. And I loved it in those early weeks, like for the first month, month and a half. And then it kind of got to the point where I realized all these like objects and these things that I was collecting, 
they didn't really have a purpose. They just, you would just put them in your house. And then like, you know, Tom Nook, the mayor or whatever would ask you if you wanted to expand your house. And all of a sudden you had like a mortgage. And I remember thinking like, I don't, I already have a mortgage in real life. I don't know if I want like my like digital avatar to have a mortgage. Like the family don't have yeah. any mortgage. So <laughs> I, I still really like that game. And they just came out with a new update a couple, like a week or two ago that kind of has expanded a lot of stuff. But yeah, that was definitely just like an influence starting out thinking like, okay, I love the aspect of Animal Crossing. You can wander and just like be really chilled out. I love that. But I would love for there to be some kind of like underlying narrative that that is kind of propelling you forward or you know the objects you get you can actually use them there's an arcade console in animal crossing there's a couple arcades but you can't play them and i remember thinking why do i have this like would it have been so hard for nintendo just to like port a couple old games that they have onto this thing. I'm there sh- are older versions of Animal Crossing, like from the GameCube era, that do have the Nintendo version of like Mario Brothers or Donkey Kong. I mean, yeah. see? Why didn't they do yeah, that? Yeah, they, they already did that once. I don't know why they stopped doing that. I think I honestly, if there was like an arcade in Animal Crossing of like 15 or 20 games, I would play it every single day. I would still go back and visit that arcade and play these little mini games. Like, so that was, that was a I guess one of the reasons it's like, all right, Tux and Fanny, you're going to be able to play any of the games you find. Changing tack a little bit. What are some of the most notable Tux and Fanny glitches that you experienced during programming in the glitch part of the story? Are there references to any glitches that actually happened to you? Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, there'd be like a fun glitch where um, they would appear somewhere where they shouldn't be walking or something. Or like, you know, I think it was like a close-up of the magnet or the bread or something, but then like Tux and Fanny were walking through the close-up. Like little things like that. What I would always take a screen cap and just be like, oh, look what we got here. This is cool. Yeah, and that one was used in the peony glitch after you beat Adventure Brain. Right, um, right. I think, yeah, because Albert did most of the testing. I would be just trying to get everything into the game because Albert would keep pumping out content for me with design notes and the art and stuff. And I would just try to sit down each day and get through everything you'd sent me. And then I'd usually, after a couple days, send him over a version of the game so he could play it. And I hadn't tested a lot of it, so sometimes he would hit a bug pretty early, or sometimes he'd run into some weird stuff. And so we were using a a web-based issue tracker, and so he'd just post screenshots and stuff. And then I'd, I'd have the job of trying to figure out what it was. And if I could figure it out, I'd usually send a message being like, oh, this happened because of that. Mm-hmm. It was fun for me having someone else to, because I'm used to testing all my own stuff, which is uh, <laughs> kind of exhausting. But being able to send it over to Albert and Albert finding all these bugs and sending them back to me was such a nice uh, workflow. Yeah, and it was really fun for me too. Like I, every time I got a new demo, it was the most exciting thing and I would load it up right away and just like couldn't believe that the things that I had been sending over would all of a sudden I could walk around and play them out. I think for me, one of the biggest parts of it was not necessarily Albert doing certain things, but just having Albert there to bounce ideas off of made such a huge difference. Like, I feel like if I'm writing a story, then it's going to be too simple. And I haven't spent that much time working on complex video game narratives. So having Albert there doing most of it, but then also being able to contribute and feed in my own ideas were applicable. It felt like such a back and forth process wherever we wanted to expand an idea or explore something and doing art as well like it was such a shared evolution of the game and that more than albert doing any specific thing instead of me it was just so nice having someone to uh share the process with and evolve these ideas together yeah totally i remember like the first couple times that you like i gave you the title for ant acquisition and you just like came back like a week later with the game totally made and i was just like oh this is incredible and then you did it again with cool cloud and i got i realized i was like i need to step back here you know, I can work on like the main story, but some of these mini games, like Gabe is really like on another level. And it was so nice collaborating with someone who understood the characters, Tux and Fanny, to the point where like I would start writing dialogue for them. And then kind of by the end, I was probably writing less than you were. Just just like knowing that you understood them and understood their voice and how they would talk. But for me, I think, you know, just like in that initial tweet, I don't know how to technically make a video game. 
So that part of it, I, I would say, is the thing that I don't like to do just because I don't know how to do it, you know? And to this day, I still don't actually know how, how you build the game in Unity, you know? It's like, I, I loved like getting through this whole process without knowing, but I think next time if we do one, it'll, it would be fun to like peer under the hood, as it were, a little bit and see kind of how it comes together because it's interesting. But like when I mentioned the pixel art drawing being very easy, like the, the easier something is, maybe easy is the wrong word, but just like the less blockage between like my idea and like making the thing there is, the better for me. Like if I have to wrestle with the program or figure out like this technical thing, by the time I'm figured it out, usually I'm like not inspired anymore or the feeling has kind of passed. So I really love this process because I could just kind of like dream big every day and just, oh, what's going to happen next? Like we'd have these long Google documents where I would just like lay out what's going to happen here and and then it would magically just appear in a demo like a week later. You know, it was really one of the, the most amazing, fun collaborations I've ever been a part of. Was there any like immediate feedback from the film then and did it influence anything yeah with the video game version i'm sure i did i it had like a premiere here in baltimore in uh may of 2019 that was a fun screening there's like 100 people there and like a lot of friends and family so there was good energy in the room that night and then it played at a couple festivals but really i was like in heavy pre-production on strawberry mansion the movie that i made last year so I remember Tux and Fanny played at the Ottawa Animation Festival, which is a festival I, I went to a couple times when I was in college. I would always send them short animations I made. And I never got in, and I, it's like one of I think the preeminent animation festivals in the world, you know. And it got it got in there, but it was during our Strawberry Mansion shoot, so I wasn't able to go to it. Which is, there was a chance like it was like on a day off, and I was like, should I really fly to Ottawa for like one night to see this? You know, it just didn't make sense because we were making a movie is so hard and every day off you're like kind of solving problems for the next couple of days. But I think the feedback that I got or that kind of stuck with me was people just liking their their world, like Tux and Fanny's kind of simple life and really relating to like their relationship and their friendship and just kind of the way that they, if Tux's skin was eaten off, that was all right. You know, they would find a way around that and just kind of go with the flow. So I, I think that was just something that we were keeping in mind, making the game, like how to make them still feel like they're these characters, but having, you know, having to expand it. And the video game kind of goes deeper in some ways than the movie in terms of like, who are these characters? What is the land around them? What is like the dark forest? So just like trying to make sure that whatever we did in the game would make sense coming into the movie later. Like if... If you saw this, it wouldn't kind of like erase everything that you had, you know, previously seen. So what would you say is your favorite character trait of both Tux and Fanny for each of you? One's more about sights and sounds. That would be Tux. And then Fanny would be smells and taste touch. If I'm getting that Yeah, right. it's funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Fanny, Fanny loving smells, I don't think was really ever touched upon in the movie so much, but making the game, it started to come through early on. I was like, oh, this Fanny just loves smelling things and is gonna comment on the smell of things over and over again. And that was nice to like figure out. And it still felt like it fit Fanny's you know, personality from the movie. But I think I just kind of relate to Tux as just kind of like, you know, looking at the fire and thinking about the vastness of the universe and kind of going existential one little thing, all of a sudden Tux goes off in this inner monologue about the futility of the world or something, you know. I think I like that about Tux. Yeah, similar thing for me is just Tux's imagination and uh, openness to really digging into something kind of abstract, being inspired by something in the real world and then taking it off on a tangent. And then I love how that pairs with Fanny's kind of almost no-nonsense attitude where kind of rolling eyes at a lot of things that Tux says or does and always bringing it back and grounding it and just being more practical. It's a great pairing. So what would you say in the Tux and Fanny game is something that you're most pleased with? I think I really like the whole fly sequence at the end of the Dark Forest. I think that idea we had pretty early on and we were just kind of working our way up to it. We had to do all these other parts of the game to get to that part, to the fly battle. 
and it was always kind of like what's this going to be like the idea of like referencing a bunch of different types of mini games within this and yeah i think that just came together in a really fun way and i love like an end boss of a video game that's really epic and it, i you know even though it's not like your conventional end boss and you really can't even really die fighting the fly it still feels like we we did something exciting and new there that like the game had kind of been building up towards i'm real proud of what we pulled off there yeah the fly definitely is kind of a highlight where you've played through so much stuff and then you hit that and it's something totally different and references so many different like classic video games and also it's its own mini games we had to be careful because we originally wanted to do a bunch like all the different mini games referenced in there but we realized some people might not have played any of these mini games so we tried to limit it only to stuff that people would have played already. I think that's a very fun piece of the game, but also I think like the first act of the game, I just really like because it sets the sets the mood so well and it's got some fun puzzles, like finding all the numbers of the safe is just kind of this explorative thing where you look at everything and eventually find the numbers. And I also love getting the smoke from the chimney puzzle. It was challenging for a while and then we added enough little hints and guides to really push people through that nicely and I think hmm. by the time they get to the gate and that's what the demo of the game is now that we released is just that first act and it feels like it really gives you a proper slice of the game with a few mini games in there and some records to find mm -hmm. and yeah I think just that slice of the game is really solid and definitely the part of the game that's had the most polish too because it was like everyone who played the game had to go through that and so we could really fine tune it and get it feeling solid and intuitive. I have other questions that are more open-ended about art. The frustrating part about making art or making money doing what you love. Uh, what has been your experience, uh, Gab? I understand that these previous games and Tux and Fanny are start at zero budget. How do you work through that? Uh, I had a job doing programming for maybe three years before I went fully independent. With uh, with Jet O'Mara, I was kind of working on it, and it was my second game, but it was the first game that I wanted to release on consoles, but I didn't have a game plan for that at all. And uh, I was just posting GIFs with Jet O'Mara, and eventually one of them got shared around, and... I think that led to Greg Rice from Double Fine inviting me to the Day of the Devs event. And that was like the first time I'd had any kind of success, even though it wasn't like monetary success. It was it was definitely like getting exposure and getting to meet other developers who were doing similar stuff and just making connections with like Xbox and PlayStation and stuff, which meant that after that event, I had basically a, a good path into getting get onto those consoles, which was my goal all along. And definitely releasing on those platforms meant that I could make a little bit more money with the game. So that has kind of kept me afloat for a couple of years at least. That was a big thing. Unfortunately, I, th I thought Test Tube Titans might have a little bit more traction based on the fact that I had done Jet O'Mara already, but it never really uh, got the attention that I was hoping it would. Definitely a lot more games out there and uh, coverage of the games feels, I don't know, I, I haven't figured out, like with Tuxedo I don't know why we didn't get more coverage from uh, higher profile sites, which is frustrating at times, but we'll hopefully get through it. Sort of correlating that to Albert and your work doing independent film. I know you tour a great deal um, with the films that you've done. Certainly, Strawberry Mansion, you've been here and there. Certainly with Silvio. That's why Tux and Fanny learned Russian, if I'm not mistaken, is because you were in Russia? Yeah, yeah. Silvio had like a single screening in Moscow and they flied Kentucker and I out there. And that's like the cherry on top of making things is when you get to travel and go to new places and meet new people. And the festivals are excited to have you there and pay for your flight and your hotel and it's kind of like like I just got back from Denver and it feels like you know I don't know if I'd ever would have been to Denver or what would ever bring me to Denver but all of a sudden there's a movie and it's playing in this movie theater and I get to go and have dinner in Denver <laughs> you know it's like wow I'm in Denver Colorado but Tux and Fanny always started like I love making movies with with friends and collaborating with Kentucker and, and some other dear friends 
But Tux and Fanny kind of started as like something I could do just on my own. And I could do it from home, sitting on the sofa on my laptop. And it was, for that reason, it felt like kind of freeing in a way, because it is hard to make a movie. It, you know, you do need like the lights and the camera and all of a sudden, you know, your initial excitement and idea is like run through all of these realities and you realize like, oh, I can't do this where you don't have money to do that. With Tux and Fanny, it was never like that. It's like, okay, Tux's skin gets eaten and now it's just a skeleton and I can draw that. So it was very freeing. And I was getting a lot of feedback from different people online who I really respected, different artists or animators who I had been following their work for years and they didn't know I exist. And all of a sudden they were like responding to this thing. So I was like, I think this is a sign that I'm doing something right. Like Tux and Fanny is the right thing for me to be pursuing at this time in my life. Like it's like the thing that's maybe closest to my, I don't want to say like soul, but it's like, there's like the least amount of resistance coming from the idea to like the final product. So, you know, you're always wrestling like how to make money. I've done adjunct teaching of animation and filmmaking here in Baltimore over the years as a way to make a little bit of money. I haven't cracked the code of how to make a living off of strictly of, of my art yet, you know, but with each project, you learn something or maybe you, you get a little bit closer. And, you know, like even the Tux and Fanny movie, before I put it on YouTube for free, it was on this website called Eternal Family for maybe, I don't know, six or seven months. And it, they would pay you based on how many minutes of the movie was watched or something like that. And I would get a check in the mail or not. It was a direct deposit. It wasn't a check, but it was, you know, every month for like anywhere from like a hundred to $200. And to me, that was just like the coolest thing. You know, this is something that I made for $0 sitting on my sofa. And now this like website in LA pays me, you know, a little bit of money each month. And yeah, that's not a ton of money, but you start to like get a little bit here, a little bit there. And uh, the dream is to be able to do that full time and make a living. And yeah, with the video game, I think, you know, I've never released a video game before, so I don't really know what to expect. But uh, I know that video games are huge and that there are millions of people with Nintendo Switch and with computers. So I, I know that the full audience has not found the game yet. It can be, like Gabe said, a little frustrating that it's like, you know that there's people that would enjoy it, but it's just they're being bombarded with all these, you know, high profile games and with movies on Netflix and Hulu. And it's like so much stuff coming at them. How do we find them? And, you know, I think it's like people start to play it and then they tell their friends and maybe those friends tell friends. And you, you hope that it can kind of like gain momentum on its own organically. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I think it's still early. In terms of things making momentum, I think Silvio was fairly popular on Vine, but appearing here and there before, certainly in your band Teen Men's music videos. Mm -hmm. What was the first appearance of Silvio? Um, Silvio, he actually appeared in a film I was making that never, I never released it. This was in 2013. I was working in overnight at this hotel. And I was filming a movie while I was working there just because I was so bored most nights. So I was like making this really kind of like meta movie about working at a hotel. And there's a gorilla that also worked there, you know. So anyway, I had like half an hour of it done. And then Vine came out and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is much better than what I'm doing. I can make a six second video, make it fast, share it. And um, yeah, you know, Vine was a weird thing. It wasn't around for too long, just a couple of years. But over... You know, a couple of years I had like 500,000 followers, which was more than I'd ever had anywhere else. I would have people all around the world seeing videos I made right when I made them. And then Kentucker had the great idea to make a movie of it. And we're like, oh, this is great. We'll make this movie. And then we've got 500,000 people that are like going to be interested in watching it. We've got our audience. Of course, Vine went away like two months before we finished the movie. So that idea kind of was thrown out the window. But, you know, I think with everything, it's like I always just think like each project or each character or whatever kind of leads you to the next thing. Like making those Silvio Vines led to making the movie. Well, then that led to going to Moscow and learning, you know, Russian. And then that led to Tux and Fanny finally kind of like finding the right thing. And so I'm, I'm very much like a fan of just making things and not stopping too long to think about why you're making them or what they mean and just kind of seeing where it leads you. And I think if you're open, it, it always leads you somewhere interesting. I definitely love the conceptual continuity of all your work and leading up to Tux and Fanny. I do have one more question about Silvio, and it's not, what's the app going to break? 
but where did you find Herbert Herpel's the puppet with the raised cup tan? Yeah. What about Herbert spoke to you? It's just yeah. This is a great story, and actually, I I still have a dream of making a Herbert feature with all the puppets because I have I have like twenty different puppets all that same style, and I had a friend just over and we we laid them all out on the table and we started to like try to imagine a world, a Herbert world. But it was 2013 and I was deep in the Silvio Vine game where I was just, you know, making two or three Silvio Vines a day. And I would go to this um, Goodwill thrift store in 202 in Delaware, Route 202. I would go there like once a week just finding props. Like, you know, Silvio doesn't speak, so I would like find little props or costumes or things like that. Anyway, one time I went there and behind the counter in the glass, they had the little puppet. They had the uh, they had three puppets. They had, you know, the bald man. They had a doctor, and they had a woman. And they're behind the glass. So in my mind, you know, only the nicest things are put behind the glass at the thrift store, right? Like, I thought they were going to be like sixty dollars each. So I didn't even ask. I just went home, didn't buy them, and I I got home, and I couldn't stop thinking about them. Like I was like haunted by this like little puppet. And I think that night I even like dreamt that I went back to the store and bought it. So I, in the morning, you know, I think the store might have opened at like 10 or 11. I was, I went there right when it opened and they were still there. I was like, my fear was that they weren't going to be behind the counter. I went over to the cashier, asked, and they said $12. And it was like $12, I think for all three of them. It wasn't crazy expensive. I think they were behind there just because they were older. You know, sometimes they would just put like old things behind there. Anyway, so I bought them so fast and like within five minutes, the name Herbert Herpels was there. We had friends visiting that weekend who were then going to see a friend whose last name was Herpels, you know? So like that was given to me, like that name was just perfect. As soon as they mentioned they were going to see their friend Herpel, like, you know, Tom Herpels, then it was like, well, if Her- Herpels is the last name, Herbert is the first name. And that, you know, and then it was just like, I love the idea of characters, then having characters, then having characters, you know. So it's like Sylvia, this character I made, now he can make a Herbert Vine account and he can do like Herbert Vines on there. And then, you know, Herbert eventually got a little goblin finger puppet and there was another Vine account for Gary Goblin. And it's, you know, it's just the worlds within worlds within worlds, which... Right, you carried on with Home Simulator and Tux and Fanny. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just... That kind of stuff just always tickles my fancy, I think. <laughs> Great. Thank you for answering that. <laughs> There's just something about Herbert. Yeah. Part of my podcast, I try to suss out making the definition of what is art and what is art versus what is content. So I guess the best way of asking that is how do you define art? You. <laughs> uh, one of the examples that I give is that art is what happens when all the chores are done, but that diminishes a certain part of... Um, the process so what would you say <laughs> yeah art is what happens in this house when i'm not doing the chores and i'm putting them off i think <laughs> definitely there's a lot of chores that need to happen around here uh i don't know art is just um i was talking with a friend last night who was an art teacher for children i think like you know four-year-olds to seven-year-olds let's say she's like my main thing is just trying to get them to observe or talk about like seeing the world and observing the world. And I really love that. Like, so I think art is what happens when you're really looking at things or where you're really observing what's going on around you. Like that's the path to art. Cause if you're, if you're looking at the world, if you're looking at a cloud or a flower outside and you're thinking about it, you know, there's so much happening there, so much inspiration that's right like around us. And art is what comes out. I think when you're really looking hard at the world around you. At least for me, I think that's what happens. And I don't know about content, you know. Content is a chore. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like art, it's very important for it to be a form of expression. And you're not worried about how it'll appear or you're you're taking a chance with things. It's more of a risk when, when you're making art. And content is kind of what's expected of you and creating something for the sake of entertainment instead of creating something for your own sake, which I I think if you're making art for yourself, then that's the best kind of art because inevitably someone else is going to find it and love it. And it's the most honest art you can make if you're making it for yourself. Yeah. 
I like that. It's also, it made me think of the idea that like, when you're making art, you don't always know what it is. Maybe with like content, you're a little bit more of like, there's like a formula or you know what you're making. But I think a lot of times with art, you're just kind of have like an urge or a desire or maybe a curiosity. And you have, you, you kind of like, I don't know, start drawing or start playing a melody and, and you're not sure where it's going to end up. And it's sometimes becomes, you know, ends up in a really exciting place. Other times you're kind of like, oh, this was a, a failure. But I think if you're really enjoying what you're doing, there's, I don't really look at it like there's, there's no failure, you know, it's like you're learning and then the next time you're going to make something and you're going to do it a little differently or you're going to pivot something. But I think the, the thing I always think about, again, like talking about kids is like, is that idea of playing, you know, like to me, making art and playing are very connected. It's, it's like, you know, as a kid, I loved my Legos or I loved, um, you know, like finger painting and you don't really know that you're making art, but you're just like having so much fun playing. And I think if you can find that spirit, keep that spirit strong in, in making art, like, you know, enjoying it and experimenting and, and having fun, then it, it's really going to show in the final product in the content that you make. <laughs> Very good. Well, I've kept you a while. So are you guys planning on making another game together? Or do you have plans that were discarded that you look to incorporate in other realms? Yeah, you know, this game came together so organically without any thought. And so I know personally, I learned so much making this. And the second we kind of like said, this is the end, no more new stuff. Like four nights later, I had like the most vivid, like kind of idea come to me in the middle of the night. And I think, yeah, I, it would be so fun to do it again. Just take everything we kind of started doing with this and expand it and go bigger and, you know, actually plan it out a little bit this time instead of blindly going into the desert together, which was great and fun. But I think with a little bit more focus and like maybe even some prep time where we try some different styles and like, you know, experiment with different looks, I think we could uh, have a really fun another game on our hands. I mean, and just like selfishly, I would love to to make another one. I don't want to like live in a world where we don't get to, you know, like there's not another game that we made because I think <laughs> the people that have played Tux and Fanny, friends and friends of friends and many strangers too, but, you know, I think they're responding to it. So the, the hope is that we'll let Tux and Fanny breathe for a little bit and hopefully find more of an audience and when the time feels right, kind of tackle the spiritual sequel. I think the goal is to to keep working together, yeah, because it was it was such a perfect experience making Tux and Fanny, and uh, I think it's given us a lot of ideas and things to think about for what we'd do if we did another one, and so uh, I'm not sure exactly when it'll start to take shape, but I think that's definitely something we'd like to do. Sounds good. Is there anything else about Tux and Fanny that I should have asked but didn't? Or any question in general? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? <laughs> I always love the um, the Monty Python answer to that question. In their film, you know, the meaning of life, at one point at the end, they're just like, oh, we, we should probably answer that now. And it's like, I, I'm going to not say it correctly, but it's something like, go for some walks, like, eat healthy, try to live in peace with people. You know, it's like so like basic stuff. Where you're just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of the meaning right there, you know. I guess the meaning of life is to make as much content as you can. <laughs> Very good. Anything else to add? Um, where can people most easily find your stuff? I've got most of my stuff on ghosttimegames.com. That will have links to all my games. Yeah, from there you can also contact me if you have any questions. Yeah, and my website is just a Bernie B-I-R-N-E-Y dot com and that links to some films and the video game and the social media spots where I, you know, post pictures of clouds and stuff like that. Super gluing things, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of super gluing. I, you know, I don't know if I've always been this clumsy, but, or if I'm just starting to be more clumsy now that I know I can super glue anything. But, you know, at least once a month, I'm something is breaking around here and got to glue it back together. And that's what t Twitter is for, I think. All right. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So, I hope you enjoyed hearing what Albert and Gabriel had to say as much as I did. 
Uh, I gotta say, it was ridiculous fun researching their former work. Uh, just as fun as it was playing Tux and Fanny. If you love Tux and Fanny, then you'll love all the work from Albert and Gabriel. In the interview, Albert says that art is when you're really looking at things and observing what's going on around you. And the tagline for Tux and Fanny happens to be, when you take a closer look, everything is an adventure. So I'll leave here with that. Thanks for listening. If you have friends who make art, please support them. It really makes a big difference in encouraging uh, independent art to continue being made and making our dwindling time on this earth a little bit more tolerable. If you like this podcast, find me on Twitter or YouTube under the internet pseudonym Zappa Video. Mostly just posting my own dumb, mean nonsense. But any feedback is appreciated and could influence what I do next. Or don't. Do what you want. I don't know. For all I care, you can go. This has been Headclog and the Operator. Hosted and edited by me, Jeremiah Alworm. And produced and distributed by Matt Keeley of KS Media, LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. All things to all people. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>